Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, and joining me is a man who, with just a few choice expletives, routinely hurts the feelings of the Chinese people three times before breakfast. Mr. Jeremy Goldhorn, how are you, man? I'm doing very well, thank you. That's really a lovely introduction this week. <laughs>、uh, so the summer of 2013 has been kind of a sad one for me.、Uh, In spite of Biden's stock rise,、uh, a, a few weeks ago on this show we、uh, we bid a fond farewell to Evan Osnos of the New Yorker, and this week we say adieu to another favorite, terrific reporter, a veteran correspondent who has been、uh, reporting from outside her native Minnesota for about what 25 years. Yeah. And,、um, frequent guest on Seneca, of course,、uh, Mary Kay Magistad. Mary Kay, so glad you could join us. Though we're of course very sad to see you leaving well, Beijing. And I'm glad and honored that you're having me here. But I must say, I don't think it's going to be adieu. I hope it's just abianto or zaijian. Yeah, I yeah, do expect yeah, to be、definitely. back. <laughs> well, I, I, they all come back. They all come back. Yeah, there's a magnetic pull here. Right. I mean, and but you, you'll no longer be based here, which will be, you'll be based instead in that in that really pusillanimous city. San Francisco,、yeah. where nobody actually has politics that they've ever fought for. Right? <laughs> <laughs>、uh, I'm just joking. I, I, I just I like to take the I like San Francisco. It's, it's sort of become、lot. a halfway house for China hands. It is. It is, and it's full of them. I mean, there's so many of them there. Yeah. You, you throw a rock and you hit one. It's the the place where you go to recover from your post traumatic stress disorder, is it? <laughs> right. It's like at least you don't have total withdrawal from Asian food. Well,、right. I think what I'm going to be doing is, is making a point of walking to Chinatown and like listening for Mandarin and Cantonese and、right. occasional Burmese or Vietnamese. Did、words. Did you see this report about Mandarin and Cantonese? They're they're actually saying that Mandarin is somehow weirder than Cantonese. Because I and I, I I guess I didn't you know I'm no linguist I I can't maybe we'll we'll wait until we talk to our friend David Moser. I don't think we have to wait. I mean, calling a language weird is just bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it's, what, it's, what is a la- la- all languages are weird if you haven't heard them. This is true. I mean, you know, is Zulu weird? Is Kosa weird with all its clicks? Yes, it is. It is if you've never heard Kosa it. Kosa is weird <laughs> with all its clicks. Anyway, America, you've been in Beijing nearly as long as Jeremy here, right? You opened the NPR bureau here in, in well, 1995. I think she came here before I ever arrived, we right? Were in, we were both in the kindly commercial building. That's right. Which no longer exists. Which no longer exists.、Uh, which has a, a great alumni association.、Um, Nick Bonner was oh, there. Oh well, wow, and, Nick, crazy、uh, Nick of North Korea. What's it called? Dominic Ziegler, who's now the、yeah. editor of、um, the, Economist, the Economist, was just on. Where where was this、me? kindly building? Behind Chijayan Diplomatic Compound,、ah. next to the old Silk Street, when it was still an outdoor market yeah, before they put it、market. in this silly building.、Ah. Yeah. In fact, I was just biking down there. You know, it was closed for a long time. You've you been doing a lot of this reminiscing. I, I, I have, and this was the first time I'd biked down there actually since the 1999 demonstrations. I was thinking, wow, and that's where they were throwing bricks. At the <laughs> What <laughs> a fond I, memory! And, and, at the old U.S. embassy, and that's where the Molotov cocktail went in and put, you know, got the curtains on fire in the U.S. embassy. I was there at that moment when when somebody decided, wait a minute, the Kosovars are Albanian. Let's attack the Albanian embassy because the Kosovars are on the other side right, of the and Serbs, and we're supporting the Serbs. And talked to the Albanian ambassador the next day, and he was he was so hurt. He's like, "But like, we're one of their oldest friends. I、Why、know what the hell."、Us? Yeah, yeah. Anyway,、um, <laughs> anyway but, but before this, before you started、um, NPR and then PRI, you were actually reporting out of Southeast Asia. Right? That's right.、Even、before that, right? I started in Thailand, based in Thailand, in 1988. Oh my gosh!、Um, so I mean, I do want to walk through your whole long storied history,、uh, reporting from this part of the world. But first, I want to make sure that、um, you know we we、uh, we all know and love you mainly from your the gig that you've had here for nigh what、uh, 
this gig? 17 years or something well, like that. Well, this gig with the world, I've, I've been here for 10 and a half, 10 and three quarters years. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, and, but I opened NPR's bureau in 1996 and was here until 1999. So PRI's The World is a co-production of WGBH, which is um, in, in Boston. Public PRI, Radio International and the BBC. And the BBC, right. So to someone in the States, it all sounds like public radio. Right. Uh, but in fact, there are three different providers of public radio programming in the U.S., NPR, PRI, and American Public Media. Oh. And uh, it just <clears throat> sounds seamless as you're listening on your radio dial, and of course. that's fine. Right. So, I mean, PRI is famous for you guys and for actually This American Life. That's right. right. And, and yeah. also, PRI started Marketplace. Oh, right. But then it through took, it got taken over a somehow, series but. of convoluted actions that we don't need to go into here, um, the person who started PRI broke off and, and formed um, this new conglomerate, American public media and took marketplace with them. So the the, um, the world is one of my favorite uh, news uh, radio format news programs. I listen to it really pretty religiously. I, I really like the presenters. I like the the depth in which you go into stories. Um, can you uh, for people who aren't familiar with it? Can you can you tell people how they can listen to PRI's The World? Sure. So you can podcast it on right. iTunes. You can stream it on our website, which is www.theworld.org. You can listen if you're in the United States live. It usually goes out between three and eight p.m. To, depending on which market you're in, which mm -hmm, city you're mm -hmm. in. And it's um, it, it's a show which, although it's based in the United States and based in Boston, it's recorded out of Boston. It focuses on world events. Right. We're actually the only show broadcast show in the United States that focuses exclusively on international news and current affairs, okay. television or radio. Wow. Um, Jeremy, you, you listen to it, I imagine, or do you only listen to it when Mary Kay's on? <laughs> uh, mostly when Mary Kay's on, but I, I, I have a, it's in my podcast subscriptions. I do listen to it regularly. I mean, that and the BBC, and I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, American public radio is great, and the world is, 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 is a fantastic part of it. It's just a shame that, you know, it's so difficult in the States to get funding for these things. Well, but no I mean, you know, it's still a wonderful service. Are you able to talk about the, the financial state of the station right now, or is that a sensitive topic? It's uh, Well, so it's not a station. It's a program. Right, of the right? program. But, right, right. Um, yeah, no, it's a tight time for public radio and for Public Radio International in particular. Right. So we're, we're cutting back a bit. That's a real shame. Um, I mean, I, in a time when I think a lot, of, a lot of news media, I mean, a lot of media outlets are closing their foreign bureaus, that's, that's, that's a real shame. And, and, mm. You know, this... So I can only hope that, you know, we live to fight another day, we get more funding and, you know, can <clears throat> send more foreign correspondents out to do the reporting, the kind oh, of reporting we do. Uh, which maybe is a good way to lead into uh, one of the questions we'd like to ask you, which is about the soundscape of China. You know, I mean, you, we're talking about keeping a certain kind of reporting alive. It's different from the newspapers and the wire services, you know, doing radio. So what is unique about the soundscape of China? What, what is it like to be specifically a radio reporter in yeah, this I mean, country? Yeah, when I've seen you at work before, I mean, I always see you, like, recording ambient sound or, or, or seeing you sort of, you know, sticking your mic into a group of people sort of chattering or, you know, cafe noise and stuff. That must be fun. I mean... It is fun. And I, you know, it's interesting. When, when traveling with colleagues, it's always easier for me to travel with print colleagues, both because I used to be print and I think like a print reporter, but also because um, radio tends to go a little bit more in-depth more often than not, compared to television. Right. Um, and we don't do as many sort of stage shots or 
<clears throat> stand-ups or whatever. But one thing we do do differently is like stand for a couple of minutes and just record whatever's around. There was one time when I was covering Cambodia many years ago, and a friend and I were uh, reporting on uh, some Vietnamese boat people who'd been attacked by a local Cambodian community. They were upset that there were so many Vietnamese around. And, you know, we talked to the people who'd been attacked and we talked to the Cambodians. And then I said to my friend, just a second, I went down to the river and recorded the sound of the water going by for a couple of minutes. <laughs> and I come back and she's like, radio reporting really is different. <laughs> it really is. So what is it in Beijing? I mean, you go for the pigeon whistles and the... <laughs> you go for anything that's evocative and that really sort of brings you into a place that speaks to your imagination and, right. and lets you think about what it might be like to be there. Um, and I wouldn't say, I mean, obviously China is so rich in different kinds of sounds. Um, and I just always have my ears. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking of. Rich. Yes. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, too. It's Remember that, rich. that David Sedaris piece where he, he compared it to the, the right. sound well, of a cappuccino that was, that was too easy. <laughs> well, I had actually never, it never occurred to me that it really does sound like a cappuccino steamer steaming milk when somebody's getting ready to hop one. Well, you know, I, just, I wasn't just thinking of spitting. I mean, you know, you have spitting in China. You have, you know, the sound of your neighbors renovating their apartment. Well, that's that's yeah. Time. You have you that have, in Hong Kong you too. You have traffic. You have you. you know car horns. You have uh, you have a um, no, very noisily spoken language. Have, have either of you guys gone to Jingshan Park at about nine o'clock on a Sunday morning? I have, I have not in a long time, but I used to. When it's I was such here. a yeah. wonderful scene. I mean, it you is. have people singing revolutionary songs. Yeah. You have other people playing different traditional Chinese instruments. You have the hip hop dancers over here. You have people doing ballroom dancing over there. At 9 a.m. <laughs> 9 or 10, yeah. yeah I mean, well, awesome. okay, so, you know, if you happen to have had an early night on Saturday, you could yeah. check it out. The, cl- the I, clacking of the, the I love Chinese parks them. in the morning, and I'm not a morning person, but it will occasionally get me up to go out and just hang out. Um, so, you know, you, you, you've certainly, in, in your time here, you've stumbled on some... Um, on many oddball scenes here, you've you've you've, you've reported some quir- really quirky or endearing or otherwise just you know generally intriguing segments of Chinese society. So what what are what are some that stand out for you here? What are some of the little the little you know uh, scenes you've stumbled on that? Well, the one I was just talking about the scenes in the parks. Yeah, in the, in the yeah, mornings. that's what reminded me. Um, and not just in the mornings, but I've found that it's a great way to connect with people, going and just hanging out in the parks and seeing who you run into and. Um, you know, quite often you'll, you know, meet people who just happen to have a little time on their hands and often are willing to talk, and it leads in unexpected and often really interesting directions, and some occasionally has led to a story. Um, one of the things that, that, that the world is known for, and I don't know how much of this is just pushed by the personality of one of the presenters, Marco, uh, He's really fascinated with world music. Has that been something that you've been contributing a lot to as well from from China? Well, as you know, I have. Because, in fact, I interviewed you 10 years ago. You did. This summer um, on uh, our show, Meigui. Great band, yeah. Yeah, Uh. Secondhand Rose. Um, And I try to do music pieces every so often. Oh, God, I feel old. (laughs) Yeah, 10 years. 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's a great way to get into, you know, explaining. I mean, it's, it's both fun because of the music itself but it's also a way of getting into explaining some of the changes happening in Chinese society and what's speaking to a younger generation and you know why this particular band decided to play this kind of music that, that's a scene I obviously always think up I think of but um, surely there's there's got to be other cool little um, subcultures you've stumbled on that, that are 
well, so this isn't so much quirky as, as to me, interesting that it's it's become as big as it has um, compared to half a generation ago when I started reporting here. Um, it seems like younger Chinese, um, you know, they've got they're particularly in cities, they're perhaps more materially comfortable sure. than even their older brothers and sisters were. And they start looking around and saying, okay, so what can I do that, you know, adds some meaning to my life besides buying another mobile phone? Mm-hmm. And there's been, you know, sort of this surge, I'm not sure how huge a surge, but a surge in volunteerism and people who are interested in getting involved in doing something about the environment or going out and teaching in rural schools. And I've talked to a lot of young people like that and and uh i've just found it interesting that they feel like you know no there has to be something more than just what i've been doing up until this point see see jeremy <laughs> you see so you leave us with a story they're not of all cynical hope. <laughs> a well, story of hope there's some i actually do think <laughs> there's so. hope yeah wow that's very nice to hear i'm you know i'm in a good enough mood today that i'll just you know i'll, I'll just agree to you know, agree that there's hope. <laughs> well, you know, look, in any society, there are all kinds of people. But I, I think that when I was here in the 90s, um, it felt that there was kind of much more of a disconnection between what the government was doing, what was going on, and what people felt they could do. Hmm. And I think that there's more of a sense of both empowerment and entitlement in the 20-something-year-olds now It's a good China. way to put it. Empowerment and entitlement. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a very uh, articulate encapsulation. Well, thank you. Um, what about, like, in terms of the big stories, you know, whether it's, you know, something, you know, the fall of Boise Lai or, or, or some uh, major event, what do you think in your time here has been the big story that has you, you personally have found most compelling? Wow. Um, you know, I'm not sure that there was any one event that I found most compelling, but I think what I find most compelling right now is what I did my final series on, which is, you know, the the time is coming and coming very quickly if it isn't already upon us, where the government needs to make, the party needs to make um, some careful, uh, has to reflect on, it has to make some careful calculations and reflect on what's going to happen if it doesn't give up some of the power it has in different areas, because things aren't going to move forward. There's not going to be sustainable economic development. Um, there's not going to be a social safety net for, you know, the people who need it. You know, the government's pushing this idea of urbanization, but isn't making it possible for those who move to cities to actually have the rights of, you know, other urban residents. And in Beijing and in Shanghai alone, the, the population, 45% of the population has no hukou, has no residence permit. Um, and it just feels like that pressure is building and the reaction has been the 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 reaction's been slow. So I mean, you, you've done a series on this, and I've, I've heard parts of it. Um, how how did you divide up that? I mean, that's a huge topic. I mean, the urgency of reform. Uh, how did you you tackle this? And 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 after that, what are some of the other series you've done? You've done some really great, like uh, multi part series, like for example, one on coal. I remember that was that was excellent. Right. Well, so so with the past due series, uh, is, which is what I called it, facing the consequences of control, I looked at. Huko, I looked at land rights, you mm-hmm. know, who has them, whether there should be some reconsideration of whether the government owns the land or rural collectives own the land, but in, in, effectively it's the government. Um, you know, economic reform, um, whether, you know, if the state sector continues to um, get the lion's share of advantages in the economy, you know, what that means as the economy slows down. And then um, 
the relationship between the government and the population. And, uh, you know, you could call it the need for political reform, but it's not necessarily moving immediately to multi-party democracy. Right, addressing social justice issues and... and right, and giving uh, some sort of a, a channel for uh, expression of grievances and mm-hmm. recourse and, you know, having, you know, release valves in, in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what we've been seeing in recent months is kind of closing some of the valves rather than, or at least... You know, narrowing them sure closing some sometimes opening others but yeah uh this is this has been just what everyone has been talking about of late i mean i i I, from where i sit it looks to me like uh the whole uh, anglophone media uh you know all 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 the media workers uh all foreign correspondents here are and then china watchers more generally more generally i like that formulation are, are are eager to pounce on anyone who kind of demonstrates the sort of naivete that john simpson did uh, BBC guy who who wrote uh, a, a much pilloried article in the Guardian, uh, where he basically bought this idea that that Xi Jinping is, you know, sort, sort of a Gorbachevian figure. But I, you know, the he, I think the f- saying he bought the idea is even wrong because I think why people were so stunned by that piece was that it seemed to come out of nowhere. It had no reference to. I mean, it wasn't like he bought some theory of Eric X Lee or he bought some theory of Gordon Chang, you know. It was kind of like nobody thinks what he thinks about Xi Jinping. Nobody thinks that, I don't think, right? Well, well Hong Lei I mean, does, I, I and he know. interviewed him. I think a lot of people still do. Uh, they think I, Xi Jinping what, what, is a reformer? So that's the thing. Is that well, when, whenever I, I get into this conversation with people, I say, define reformer. Define reform for me. And nobody seems to have a very good idea of what they mean by reform. I mean, some people define it in sort of a ludicrous way, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't count as reform. I mean, what, you're, what often people will suggest is um, wholesale system change, which isn't well, if reform. You, I mean, reform. I think uh, the, the Gorbachev reference, I think, is probably a good reference by what people kind of mean by reform. They mean somebody who will undertake systemic changes that will significantly alter the way the place is run. Right. That's that a sure way mean? to have any Chinese leader run away from that Western definition of reform then, because what happened under Gorbachev? Well, right. of course. That's right. well, the Communist Party does want to run away from reform. That's no, so why the Johnson piece from was that so ridiculous. Kind of, from that kind of reform. <laughs> well, and indeed, Xi Jinping supposedly gave a, a speech to Cadre back in December, at least the South China Morning Post reported this, where he said, you know, why didn't Gorbachev stand up and fight? For the Soviet Union, why didn't he fight for communism? I mean, that's a pretty strong statement if that's how he actually feels. That he has no intention to be a Gorbachevian That he well, wants to purify the party and clean things up and restore people's faith in the party and respect for the party and then move forward. Right. right. Fair enough. But that's and not isn't what that most reform? people mean by, by reform. Right. Well, then uh, most people are using a definition that it isn't applicable in any meaningful context here. It's not. It's just. It's. It's not in the books. That's not what, ref- what you know, a, a Chinese person thinks of when they say I am a reformer. When they think I am a reformer, they're saying I'm going to combat, uh, you know, the uh, combat corruption in the system. I'm going to to uh, introduce more channels for for consultation and participation from you know different interest areas in society. Some Chinese people mean that. The, Some Chinese people don't mean and that. And most when they most say actually think mostly in terms of economic reforms in you know curbing the power of, of massive state owned enterprises in in uh, freeing up funding and and, and that uh, the jury is very much still out on 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 Xi. He's uh, he's 
you know, he's been to Shenzhen and then, you know, he went to Sibaipur. So he's balancing. Well, I'm going to go on record here saying that I think that that by what has come to be the accepted definition among uh, Anglophone reporters here, and I think Mary Kay is is not part of this here, but many of the other ones – They've defined it so that it's impossibility, and it, it, it's it's a tautology. Of course, you can't. I mean, any anyone who is in government and embraces what they would call reform is is basically saying, yes, I'm willing to to stand up here and put a gun to my head and then pull a trigger. That's it's a it's 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 silly. It's it's not a useful definition. So I think an interesting question for me ever since you know Weibo came onto the scene four years ago, and you you know one could overstate the impact of Weibo, and Rebecca McKinnon has made. A very strong argument, and so has Gaudi Epstein from The Economist, that you know perhaps this has extended the uh, the tenure of the party Absolutely. as as government because it can pay you know it, it can pay attention to what people are concerned about and react to some extent, um, you know help to ameliorate the things that are, that people are most concerned about, but also go after people who are the rabble rousers and the troublemakers. Even so, I think the fact that there are so many people on Weibo who are using it as a new channel. Um, to communicate with each other and in a way to um, keep an eye on the government and to you know form a different kind of relationship right. with the government. Um, it suggests that, uh, and, and, and these are mostly younger people, right? It's mostly younger people online, that you know, having grown up with <clears throat> enough food to eat, most urban people who are using Weibo, a, a roof over their heads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the basics taken care of, they want respect and dignity and they want to be taken seriously like most human beings sure want. absolutely and and i think that dynamic is something i find most interesting absolutely in China right now, it's how fascinating. it's going to play out exactly i mean it, i think that that people are naive to either think that um i mean there's there's this sort of techno utopian fallacy we've talked about before uh where uh, this second group that you're talking about or the you know the empowerment of this this the second uh narrative is the dominant one, and that's, I think anyone who's spent enough time here knows that that's not the case, that you need to, to, to also think about what Rebecca has, has argued, what Gotti has argued, what people like Michael Anti have also argued, uh, that it's actually uh, used with, with quite a bit of savvy. They can channel the, the otherwise disruptive energies of, of the rabble into useful directions for them. They can use it to take down uh, local officials that they find, you know, troublesome they can use it as one of the release valves we were talking about let people vent better to have them bitching and moaning online than actually in the streets right yeah i think that that um, either one of the simple narratives is just just is 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 woefully inadequate to understanding what's happening in in social media here Mm. absolutely i think jeremy you'd agree with that right yes the situation (laughs) i mean to quote hu Jin, china is very complicated (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that doesn't mean that the Communist Party aren't a bunch of fucking assholes repressing people. You know, that, that, that oh, I think one, one has to get in a bit of a, you know, I mean, fuck them, really. You know, grow up. But, yes, it is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that sort of comes full circle back to my original point. They're faced with a choice. Are um, they going to evolve? They're faced with a choice. Are they going to evolve? And so far... Some of the, at least the micro choices they make, don't indicate that, you know, that they're evolving as fast as the as the population is. Well put. Oh, they never do. Nobody ever does. I mean, it's never the, these sorts of freedoms or whatever are never given. They're always taken. 
So, I mean, we should understand that, that that's, you, you can't expect them to lead the change. The, the, they, you know, it's, it's, it's the extent to which they're willing to be led, willing to be you know, uh, dragged along without, without laying down too much resistance or friction. That's true. And, you know, at some point, the Chinese people are all responsible for their rulers because they could, you know, make another revolution if they don't like them. And as long as they don't, well, then people are actually more or less satisfied with the status quo. And I think that probably does describe the situation today. Anyway, let's let's take this back to Mary Kay because I mean that, we're here to, yeah, to, to talk about her. Over um, the top, yeah, Mary Kay. Yeah. <laughs> so you've you've done a whole bunch of other different series aside, besides this one, which was the sort of um, the big finale that you did this great series. Um, what are some of the other ones that, that that stand out for you that we should? refer listeners to and well so i did one called young china this was back in 2007 and it was looking at how the one child generation um was you know fundamentally different in many ways from the generations that had come before and the potential it had for having a significant political impact right in china so that was that was that i remember that one that was really good oh, thank you i did one in urbanization that was in 2000 that was like a four-parter or something <clears throat> it was like a six-parter six-parter wow yeah it was just well, before the olympics right, right, um right. one on innovation on um, the the quest for greater innovation in China and, you know, what some of the hurdles were to meeting that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, one on the cost of coal, China's coal habit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, both I remember that one. That was one of the most, that was the most depressing thing you've done that I'm aware <laughs> of. <laughs> nasty addiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did one uh, looking at the... Uh, the the role that Tibetan Buddhism was playing both here and in Bhutan as societies modernized and tried to find their balance between modernity and spirituality. You know, I mean, that's that's an issue that I've been thinking about an awful lot of late. I feel like, um, I mean, I remember a, a few weeks ago when Evan did his, his exit interview, um, he talked about how anyone wanting to understand China today needs to go back and read Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi, and... Um, and uh, books like the Gilded Age, which you know gave its name to that whole era, you know it was an age where charlatanism was rampant, where corrupt political corruption was just just you know overweening, where everyone was deeply cynical, uh, where everyone was in, involved in some sort of get rich quick scheme, where everyone was chasing the almighty dollar. It was so much like China today in so many ways. Uh, what I always wondered is. Uh, I mean, on, on reading this, I keep wondering this. Um, you know, China seems to be locked in this downward spiral of cynicism, uh, where, where you know my cynical assumptions are that your assumptions too are cynical, and we there's this this erosion of trust that happens very quickly. And everyone in this society feels like they're always um, they need to be defensive against uh, being scammed. Every everywhere you turn, there seems to be somebody out to fleece you, to scam you, to to. Um, what, what, I, what I wonder is, how did America get out of it without, I mean, short of some sort of catharsis, short of, uh, you know, the Depression or the war even? I mean, how did 1950s America suddenly go back to this sort of trusting, not lock your doors, neighborly environment? Or is that just a myth, too? Well, that's a really interesting set of questions. And I think I might want to start by saying that I've been a reporter in countries where I, you know, there was a lot more reason on a day-to-day basis to not trust people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think on a day-to-day basis in China, a lot of people are actually pretty decent. And yeah, there oh, are people yeah. who fleece you and scam you and whatever. But, you know, if you think about all the experiences you have where someone could, you know, usually you come out okay. And I, I agree. I mean, I'm not that, that pessimistic. And of course, in the area of, of industry that I work in, 
things are very clean and, and everyone is, is your industry friendly. is nice but i mean even sort of physically like my hometown johannesburg you know i'm kind of quite quite scared to go out at night and you know if i don't know exactly where i'm going whereas beijing i mean you could you know feed me like three bottles of vodka and then dump me naked in the middle of downtown Beijing and I and wouldn't worry. And someone would pick you up someone, and take you somewhere. Yeah, you know, I mean, wallet the worst that. thing that would happen is I'd end up at the police station like uh, and have to sign a confession for being drunk or something. That's not, never happened to you before. <clears throat> never. Uh-huh. Um, but I wouldn't worry about that. You know, I yeah. mean, this is, a, in some ways, it is a very trusting society, but it is odd because, I mean, the, the thing that I uh, always call it is uh, China is a place that um, nurtures a, a kind of culture of preemptive backstabbing, uh, which you particularly find in business, which is that the assumption is that the opposite number is going to cheat you. So even before they cheat you, you just stab them in the back to make fucking sure you get the knife in first. Right. Preemptive backstabbing. Like the Pink Floyd this is my, yeah. my word. I hope nobody steals it because yeah. I, I, I should register the trademark. Before someone else does. Before someone else does. Stabs you in the back. I'll, you know, stab them in the back. But, so, but, Jeremy, I mean, how, how this does, is how does a common behavior out? in China. How know? does the country and, come And when you this? drive... Also, th- this is true. Like I- I've been trying to, I've been working on this essay about driving in Beijing and how it tre- teaches you to be an asshole. Because but if you drive like an asshole, you get places, and if you're nice, you don't get places. But well, you know, yeah. How do we get out of this? I don't actually have the question. Uh, but if the you answer bike to that question in Beijing, yeah, it's totally different. If you bike in Beijing, you bike and you do Beijing, bike in Beijing, it's I like, do. It's, yeah. it's it's kind of extraordinary to me when I'm biking and there are a lot of people around. How everyone kind of knows how to. You know, it's like jazz. You know, everyone improvises, but pretty much everyone stays safe. That's, until, that's, that's until, really well put. That's like jazz. <laughs> until someone on a motorbike goes... Right. Or Usually a it's a motorbike. Or, or, yeah. or a car comes, you know... It's either an Audi or a motorbike. wrong direction yeah. at high speed, and then it, there's a problem. But when it's just people on bikes, you're you're okay. Yeah. We should all bike But more. it's only you and me on bikes. Everyone else is in a Ferrari. That's the problem with Beijing yeah, these days. On, on, on an electric scooter. Yeah, certain kind of aging heavy metal musicians on scooters and <laughs> right. a couple of lawai on bicycles everybody else has got a ferrari i mean yeah, but, so no, seriously how i mean so you'd mentioned uh the growing interest in in tibetan buddhism and i i always thought hey, was it religious revivalism in america it was it was it you know that sort of streak of protestantism that went from um, the abolitionists, the temperance movement, and the progressives was that was that sort of what made America nice again? Is that something that uh, does China need some of that old time well, religion? You know, there were I the mean, gangsters in the 1930s, sure. and you know it was hard times during the Depression. I don't know. Maybe after World War II, people were just exhausted and just wanted to get on with it's life. Depressing. And stability and harmony seemed like a pretty great thing. Yeah, so so back to that very basic question. So, what does China do? I mean, does does it require some kind of catharsis? I mean, I'm it wouldn't what, what what set me off on this was you mentioned um, one of the series that you did about uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and and one of the things that I was thinking was that maybe in America it required religious revivalism. It required you know, the uh, progressive movement with its 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 roots in you know temperance and in abolition even uh, and. Uh, that kind of streak of Protestantism. I, I well, let's be honest. I mean, America never went through a long stretch of atheism. No. I mean, America was always a pretty religious this society. This is true. Right. Um, so I'm not sure that that's it. Don't I you mean, think it's more correlated with the economy that basically America, when it had, when most people were middle class, when even the working class people sort of 
kind of looked like middle class, that's when it was a society that became trusting. So that's only post-war. I think it has to do with having rule of law, rules that everyone agrees to play by, a sense that, you know, if you play by the rules, things will be more or less fair, that if, you know, if you try something, you actually have a shot at succeeding. Um, All of those things. I mean, you know, what makes you stand in line? at a train station to get your ticket or at a grocery store or whatever. It's because you you believe that if you stand in line, the other people will also stand in line. No one's going to cut in front of you. You know, you'll eventually get where you're going to, et cetera. Whereas in China, you know, you've got to (laughs) kick the fucking person ahead of you, you know, and like elbow the person behind you. Otherwise, although that's getting better. It is getting better. better. It is getting a little better. I can't imagine America was always like that either. No, I, I'm pretty sure it was. Nor do I exactly mean to hold up America as an example of how it's... It's a very uncivilized place in many ways. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, in, in the That's a whole other hour. Lots of it's questions. a whole other show. <laughs> lots of questions I want to uh, ask Mary Kay. I mean, and, and I guess the, the one of the main ones is, uh, you know, if so much time spent here. How has China changed you for the, for the better and maybe even for the worse? Yes, that's a good. That's a very good question. It hasn't I'm changed you curious. physically. That's that's one thing I have to point out to our listeners who don't know her. I've known her for a long time. She doesn't look a day older, which is just miraculous considering. And Mary Kay does not have a radio face. No, you know, she could she do doesn't. TV. She could be so. TV easily TV. Or. Wow. <laughs> How has it changed me for the worse? I think I would or, just have or, to or say my lungs yeah. are probably not in the same shape that they were before. You're a runner, right? Your lungs. I, huh? I, was a runner for many years, uh-huh. um, you know, 20, 25 years. I have not been running in Beijing, although I have been biking. So, I yeah. mean, I'm sort of in denial about the <laughs> impact. That's You're not breathing as fast on a bike. Right. Um, for the better in so many ways. I mean, I think um, it's uh, helped me uh, think in a more <clears throat> nuanced way about um, – human nature and resilience and you know what people do in different kinds of extreme situations and how they recover from them um and it's been a privilege to be here and to be here at a moment um that i think you know hundreds of years from now people will look back at and say that really mattered and i guess i'll just wrap with um, what are you planning on doing next what's what's mary Kay going to do back in in the bay area are you working on any big projects will you continue to report for pri so i'll be taking a break from pri Uh um working on a book on china on uh, china's quest for greater innovation oh wow um so sort of expanding on the series i did and going in some new directions and I'm going to try blogging a little bit about what, what it's like being back. Yay! Oh, cool. Yeah. Yay! Um, I, I Another blogging. good blog, yeah. Yes. I like it. Yeah, I do too. I really like so it. So I have the URL www.recoveringforeigncorrespondent.com. Wow, recoveringforeigncorrespondent.com. Nice. When, when will we nice. expect to see the first post on that? Oh, probably as soon as I leave. Oh, right, on the plane. I, <laughs> I think the recovery starts immediately. Although I, I was talking to an old friend who was here in the 90s about the idea and I told her the, the title, and she kind of shook her head glumly and said, you never recover. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're always in recovery, right? I, I That's right. All addictions a, are like that. Right. I'm a recovering <laughs> academic. I'm still... um, so let's, let's uh, move on to recommendations. Um, and first of all, to say, Mary Kay, we're going to really, really miss you here. Well, thank you. I'm going to miss you guys, too. It was too. great and, having and you all these yeah, come all back my colleagues often. and friends here in China. I, I'll, I will try to. Yeah, yeah. And I hope you have one hell of a going away party because, you know, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying not to go to every single one of them. But <laughs> it's, it's, oh, my God, I've been to so many this summer. It's so sad. 
let's let's, let's uh, go out with a great recommendation, and we'll save you for last. Okay. 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 So, Jeremy. So. I'd like to recommend a show that probably all our listeners know, which is Hard Talk, which you can uh, get from the BBC as a podcast. But I'd particularly like to recommend a show they did recently, uh, an interview with one of the scientists behind the artificial meat grown in a lab that was uh, debuted uh, you know, on YouTube and on TV recently. And I, I, I just – I think the concept of artificial meat and artificial foods is fascinating and it, it totally thrills the little science fiction geek in me. So I would recommend the Hard Talk interview with the meat scientist. We'll post the link. Um, and then I'd also recommend you go on TechCrunch and Pando Daily and you look up information about a company called Soylent. Uh, the name comes from the science fiction Soylent Green. Right, this guy, lentil. Right. Yeah, the guy that is trying to make this food, artificial food that you just drink and then you don't have to eat any meals. And Vice.com did a, um, an, an interview with him as well. And one other company that you can look up is called Beyond Eggs. And they're making – they're based in Silicon Valley and they're making fake uh, – not fake, uh, artificial eggs. Are you and trying to ruin food for everybody? No, I think that, you know, to me this is a really exciting development. As somebody who loves meat, I'd like to be able to eat meat that doesn't uh, uh, make animals feel uncomfortable. So I want lab grown in a meat. I mean, I want <laughs> meat grown in a lab. <laughs> but you'll end up with lab grown in a meat. And um, I also think that in terms of, you know, humanity continuing to uh, develop, uh, the population growing bigger and bigger, everybody developing an appetite for meat, we need to think about responsible solutions to making meat that doesn't necessarily come from cows. So I would recommend uh, these readings and uh, videos about artificial meat. Great, great, great. I, I know that's a bit weird. Add one to the China, but you know. people should also contemplate insects. There was a really good New Yorker piece a few. We months should back eat about uh, grasshoppers. We should be things. eating all sorts of different grubs and insects and things. Like, you know, lots really? of protein, more protein per square, whatever meter of of, of Earth. I'm going to um, actually do something China-related. I haven't done one in a long time. It's the documentary Living with Dead Hearts by Charlie Custer. Oh, yes. I second. It's, uh, it's, I, I have to say, I expected it to be full of hearts. I expected it to be you know, heartbreaking. I expected it to be many things. What I didn't expect, and I was really delightfully surprised by it, was how sure-handed it was shot and how you know, the cinematography was so good. I mean, how he really knew what he was doing with a camera. I mean, and, and the structure of it, too. It was really kind of novel and interesting the way he did it. It wasn't predictable. And, I mean, it, everything worked nicely. I mean, this does not seem like somebody's first documentary. Charlie Custer is a talented person. He really well, is. He has many talents. He some is. of them quite secret. Well, no, I don't think he's secret. <laughs> Music. About his, yeah, I mean, that he's a hip-hop. Hip he's yeah, a rapper. You know. He's a rapper. He's, he's Wait, so I'm not quite clear what this is about? It's it's. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't make it clear. Um I thought it's the here. most depressing subject <laughs> in the universe. It's about uh, child trafficking. It's about children who are kidnapped either for the adoption market or just to to be sold or um, you know to be pressed into service as beggars in, in other cities. And it's about some of the efforts um, you know to to address the the crisis. But and interviews with the parents, families. hence the name. I think living with the de dead hearts is the parents of these these children who are are suffering. It's it's really terrific though. It's it's. Super well done. I'm very proud of, of Charlie, and he he did the he funded the whole thing with Kickstarter. And did a really good job with it. I think I'll, I'll, you'll see if you look at his thank you list. There's a lot of familiar names on it. So and Jim Fallows, I remember seeing on there. Okay, um, so there's that. And now Mary Kay, in the last words spoken on Seneca by her for well at least a few months, you'll be back. 
So this one, this recommendation actually bounces off one of your questions. You were asking me how China has changed me. Um, I thought it was worth going back and taking a look at Jonathan Spence's To Change China. Great book. Which yeah. is about Western advisors, missionaries, and others who have come to China over the years, over the centuries, and tried to have an impact. And um, I think for many of us, as we're here, we feel some combination of fascina fascination and frustration. Some people try to change China. Many people just sort of take it all in. Um, and recognize as we go that China can be many things all at once, often contradictory, as many of us has, have observed. Um, but I had uh, a chat recently with, with someone in a research department here who was talking about how there had been a series of foreign directors, usually of Chinese ancestry, who had come and eventually got frustrated, frustrated and left. Um, and the person I was talking to said... Um, you know, each one left being frustrated because they felt they re weren't really making a difference. But each one made a difference, a little bit of a difference. It was kind of like waves hitting a shore. Um, you know, a little bit over time, it, it, you know, erodes and falls in the sand. But, you know, for any given person, they're not necessarily going to see it as much as they'd like to see it. So it's good to keep things in perspective when you're in China. Um, you know, what your impact is here, what the impact is on you. Um, and, you know, to just be a part of it and be able to, to soak it in and hopefully share some of that with, in my case, my role here was to share some of that with people who I was reporting for in the States. Um, and it was a, a great decade of being able to do that. Sage words. Thanks. That's, uh, that was really great. And I, I, I think there's no better advice for anyone coming here with that missionary zeal. Read To Change China by Do Jonathan Spence. Or anything year. else by <coughs> Jonathan Spence. Yeah. That one maybe read every year that you looked at once. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good, that's a good one to <laughs> well, thanks a lot, uh, Jeremy. We'll see you next week. And oh, yeah. Mary Kay, it was great having you on two weeks in a row. And uh, we will uh, see you again real soon, I hope. I'll be in the day. I'll be in the day. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>